Hello, everybody, and welcome to Angelica's amazing podcast, Discover the Hidden Potential of Your Mind. My name is Dave Anderson, and as you may know, from time to time, I have the privilege and the honor of guest hosting this amazing podcast. And usually when I do that, I interview the typical host of the show, Angelica. And so once again today, I am joined by Angelica, and we are going to have an amazing conversation right now about developing secure attachment styles as an adult, what that means. We're going to dive into the various types of attachment styles. And then most importantly, we're going to have an in-depth conversation about why that is relevant to you and how ultimately that's going to help you and your partner create a more healthy relationship that's balanced, that's healthy, that's really rooted in secure attachment on both sides of the relationship. So without further ado, uh, Angelica, welcome to your very own, to your own podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to do this with you again. Wonderful. Well, I think to just get into this conversation, um, I think what would be really valuable for everyone listening right now would be if you could break down the different um, types or the different styles of attachment and what that really means and kind of help us understand the fundamental concept here in the first place. Yeah. So I can give a bit of an overview first over the typical attachment styles. I have to say that we learn an attachment style to stay safe, to function in our family environment. So this is something that we learn as children. And none of these styles, though, are set in stone. They're not fixed categories. There's four main attachment styles, but people even have a mix of different attachment styles. And also each relationship brings out different feelings and reactions. That means in one relationship, we might be showing up as more securely attached than in in another relationship. So the secure attachment, that's that type of style that we're all striving for. When we're securely attached, that means we're okay in connection with someone else. We're also okay on our own. We generally feel lovable. We feel that we are loved. We're relatively flexible in terms of when it comes to accepting differences uh, or conflicts. We trust that the other person is not going to leave us because we're securely attached. And that usually happens when we've experienced a consistently responsive caregiver in childhood who was supportive, who was loving without being overly protective or being too uh, intrusive, but also without being too distant, right? So just that right way of parenting where the child can feel secure and loved, secure enough to go out into the world and make their own experiences. And relationship expert, therapist, author Stan Tetkin talks about being an anchor when we securely attached. So that's a beautiful metaphor of what it means to be securely attached. Now, there's more insecure attachment styles we could have developed. On one end uh, of a scale is the avoidant attachment, insecurely avoidant. And Stan Tetkin talks about an island. The person is like an island. They over-rely on themselves. Um, They have trouble maybe asking for help or uh, relying on others, being vulnerable. Uh, They keep others at a distance, including the intimate partner. 
uh, they might feel smothered very easily or just in general diminish the importance of relationships. So overly in the independent. And in our society, it's interesting, we value independence, but we all have to be aware that we're all interdependent, really. Um, and that attachment style happens when the caregiver was not present enough. And this is not about pointing fingers at parents or caregivers. Um, parents have their own things going on. They have their own traumas. They, there might be illness, sickness. There might be all sorts of challenges why perhaps the caregiver wasn't present enough. Um, they, or they might have been present when teaching a certain task, but maybe not so much present emotionally. Then another insecure attachment style is the ambivalent attachment. There's a lot of anxiety with that attachment style. Stan Tetkin brings the example of being like a wave. So the wave comes in, seeks connection, longs for connection, wants connection, and then retreats out of fear to be rejected, to be not lovable enough. So this person is anxious about having their needs met uh, and has trouble believing that they're worth having their needs met, that they're lovable. And that happens when the care during childhood was unpredictable or intermittent. That person will often show up with a fear of abandonment and a hyper, sorry, hyper vigilance about rejection of being hurt emotionally. Then there is a fourth attachment style, but that's the least common style. That is a disorganized attachment. And that's a person who swings between the avoidance and the ambivalence. So one moment they might be triggered, the next moment they might be checked out. And that is um, the result of having seen your parents or caregivers as threatening in childhood. Or there was so much unresolved trauma for that parent or that caregiver that there was an atmosphere of fear and dread. So then that person can really get stuck in that fight, flight, or freeze response with that disorganized attachment. It's really interesting that um, these attachment styles are really developed in our earlier years like as children. And obviously that carries through our adolescence into our teen years and even early adulthood, because in our society now, really, I think parents are caregivers. Parents are quite involved in development of children from a very, very early age, obviously from birth in most cases, all the way through into young adulthood in most uh, environments in today's world. You know, that's just kind of how things operate now. Um, what I'm really curious to hear about next, Angelica, would be so then if we're building this foundation with these attachment styles as younger people, what does that look like as it carries into adulthood and how does it, how do our attachment styles developed earlier in life affect our relationships as adults? Mm -hmm. So what's going on in our adult relationships is a reflection of these childhood attachment experiences we had. Whether we feel safe and loved in our adult relationship, whether we can smoothly go between connecting with each other and disconnecting because everyday life is connecting and disconnecting, whether we can be present with our own emotions and our partner's emotions, and in general, have that trust that we can work things out, that is directly connected to these early childhood experiences. Because when we get stressed or triggered, we automatically follow 
or, or respond with those beliefs and thoughts and feelings from childhood, right? Those learned behaviors. So an island, for example, will retreat or rely on himself, herself. A wave will anxiously go back and forth between reaching out for connection and fearing reject, rejection or expecting rejection. Uh, that's why an island is often sad or disappointed or angry before something actually has happened, just in that expectation, I will be rejected or abandoned. So there's a lot of anticipation happening. And that's what it's the anticipation of a negative experience that creates the, the present feeling of anxiety. Um, I guess, how do um, our attachment styles, how, how is it possible that, you know, our attachment style can cause tangible problems in our relationship, you know, actual conflicts or, you know, situations that are um, unpleasant in our relationships? Yes, they definitely do. Just imagine an island and a wave being in a relationship together, right? There's that island whose um, strategy is to retreat, to work things out on, let's say it's a he, this guy's <laughs> the one who likes to work things out by himself. And then there's his partner, a wave, who's anxiously reaching out, needing connection, wanting connection, and then experience the island retreating more because now they feel intruded upon. So then, of course, you, you, you get an interesting dance of island and wave. And if we're not aware of it, we jump to assumptions and interpretations instead of working with these attachment styles and both practicing more secure attachment styles because the good news is even when our main attachment style is more avoidant or ambivalent or even disorganized we never lose our uh, cap capability for secure attachment so uh, diane Poole heller that's a, that was almost a quote from her book. It's, we, she says, we never lose our inherent capacity for secure attachment. Secure attachment is always waiting to be uncovered, recalled, practiced, and expressed. And that's the fabulous news, um, I think, with all of this. Our close loving relationships are the perfect place to heal these wounds and to develop secure attachment. And I'm not quite sure who's the original person who said this, whether it was Harville Hendricks or Stan Tatkin, because I've heard them both say this. They say we are wounded in relationship and we can heal in relationship. That's the perfect place to change what we've learned. That makes a lot of sense because, you know, as human beings, we're obviously very social, we're social creatures. Um, and I think it is good news that you're sharing because I think there could be people listening right now who reflect back to their childhood, certain periods of their childhood or their early years. And they think, oh, my goodness, I didn't I didn't have this or I didn't have secure attachment. And now maybe they're even seeing um, and reflecting in terms of how it's showing up in their adult relationships. But what you're saying is that it's not a lost cause. You don't have to panic. You can, from this moment, you can work to create that healthier, more secure attachment in your relationships, in your intimate relationships, in your friendships and beyond. So it's uh, really something that is always ebbing and flowing and there's always opportunity for growth and possibility for growth.
which is really, really positive and great news to hear. Um, recently, you wrote a piece on your on your blog about contingency. And um, I think it's a fascinating concept. This, well, I want you to elaborate on it, but um, the idea that as humans were contingency detectors, could you talk about what that means exactly and how it applies to our relationships? Yes, absolutely. So we all have that innate desire to be fully seen, fully heard, fully understood by another person. And that feeling of attunement, that feeling of deep connection, when we feel that other person really gets us, that's called contingency. And um, psychologist Professor Dan Siegel says, we're naturally born con contingency detectors. That's that means we're hypervigilant. Our brain is on alert, looking for contingency. Is the other person actually hearing me, getting me? Uh, or is there judgments, you know, because we pick up on the other person's judgments for sure. And, and that disconnect. So let's, let's look at this. Let's imagine someone right now is hearing all of this and they're seeing opportunities in their relationships and in their own you know, self-reflection, they're seeing opportunities to develop a more secure attachment style. What can they do? Where would you suggest someone begin if they're seeking to develop a more secure attachment style? Yeah, so I'd like to speak about some um, skills for secure attachment we can learn and especially to learn together with our partner. But before I go through that, I have to stress <clears throat> that everybody is responsible for their own inner child. By that, I mean, we need to self-parent ourselves. So that part in us, that vulnerable little child inside, that's freaking out in relationship because, of, for example, fearing abandonment or rejection, remember, like the wave, or we're feeling smothered and intruded upon when we're more like an island. That part needs to be parented by us, right? Our inner child is our responsibility, not our partners. But what the inner child will do if you don't um, take care of it, it will bond into our partner. But our partner is not our parent. Then we end up with parent-child relationships that aren't equal relationships. So having said all that, it's my responsibility to take care of my inner child and it's my partner's responsibility to take care of their inner child. We can support each other. We can support each other as we're working with our inner children. We can support each other by creating these more secure attachment skills. So should I go through some well, of these? Yeah, I was going to say, because I know there's, there's, there's a few of them, quite a few of them. So I would love for you to sort of start into that process and talk us through you know, for kind of segmenting this and, you know, isolating these skills, because I, I do love how you break it down into skills, because um, that's going to allow someone a real, um, almost a system or, a, you know, logical approach to developing these skill sets, knowing that when you do that, it's going to result in developing the more secure attachment style. So yes, I would love for you now to break down those specific skills. Okay. Just to give one quick overview, this is, goes back again to Diane Poole-Heller. Uh, she named several attachment styles in, in my article. I'm actually going through 10 of those. The first one is listening deeply. And I'll elaborate on each of these skills a little bit more in a moment. The second one is being fully present. The third one is attunement. The fourth one is joint activities. Number five is staying connected. 
Number six, being mindful of leaving and coming. That gets us into rituals with each other. Number seven is using eye contact. Number eight, playing together. Number nine, uh, what she calls we need to unautomate. We need we can't expect our partner to respond in the same way. And number 10 is repairing, uh, repairing as soon as possible after conflict or disconnect. Wonderful. Okay, well, let's go to the beginning then. Let's start with listening deeply. Tell us, tell us more about that skill. Yeah. So uh, when I work with couples, I always notice that we can all learn to listen more deeply. <laughs> because listening deeply does not just mean I'm patient and I'm not interrupting the other person. It doesn't mean waiting to jump in and share my experience. Uh, active listening looks different. It's actually visible and audible. It starts with nonverbal cues with nodding, smiling, other facial expressions that signal to my partner I'm listening. Then there's verbal cues. I might ask clarifying questions to really understand something. A curious questions, not from a judgmental place, obviously. I might reflect on my partner's experiences and feelings. Um, and I take as long listening to one partner as this person needs to feel fully understood. And then we take turns. So we don't kind of compete with sharing and, <laughs> but one person gets to talk, the other person gets to listen. Um, listening does not require agreeing. People sometimes think, but I'm not, I don't agree with this. You don't have to agree with it. You just need to be curious about the other person's subjective experience and acknowledge their feelings. And listening at that deep level makes the other person feel less alone, uh, more secure. So that means they learn to trust us, to be a safe person to share with. So deep listening is really beautiful when we do that. And the second skill, being present, goes hand in hand with that practicing to be present with all our modern day distractions, our smartphones and so on. It's more important than ever before. So undivided intent, attention to your partner, being fully present can totally transform a relationship. Mm. I, I notice when my dad is older, he's almost 88. When I actually sit down, when I'm with him on the phone and I'm not at the same time in the kitchen doing something, but I'm actually fully present, it even transforms that simple phone conversation because he can pick up on that. I'm really fully there. Hmm. Yeah, instead of multitasking. Yeah, mm -hmm. certainly. And I think maybe sometimes, um, you know, in long distance relationships like that one where you're not physically with the person every day, sometimes that's where FaceTime or Zoom conversations, maybe th that forces people in a way to sit down, stop what they're doing and actually be fully present. Maybe there's some benefits there uh, in video, using video communication like we are right now um, in conversations like that. That's kind of interesting. You, um, you, to the third, the third skill set that you mentioned is attunement. That sounds a little bit different to me. Can you tell me, um, what do you mean by that? What's attunement in this context? Yeah, attunement is almost the same as empathy. Attunement is a combination of listening, 
of being present. And then compassion is the third ingredient of attunement. Um, and we can distinguish between three types of empathy. That's cognitive empathy, meaning I understand how somebody sees the world. There's emotional empathy. I'm resonating with their feelings. And the last one is that compassionate empathy where we can let the other one know you're not alone. I'm touched by your joys. I'm happy with you. I also am touched by your struggles and I maybe want to help. So when we're listening, we want to be curious about how does our partner see the world? What emotions are they experiencing? And this is not about right or wrong. They have a different view of the world perhaps than we do or different emotional experiences. And then the last thing we want to let them know is I'm here, I'm by your side. Uh, we're going through this experience together. I, I really like, I, oh, I just want to, sorry to interject there. I, I love, I've never heard empathy broken down into those three different components of, and I just want to review so that I'm, I'm, I know that I'm learning this. So there's cognitive, which is an understanding of how they see the world, emotional, so you're um, empathetic to how they're feeling. And then finally, the third one, oh my gosh, I don't want to forget Compa it. Compassion, the compassion. compassion is really just, it's communicating this idea that you are not alone. Like you are not alone. I, I'm with you, you know, and it's extending that compassion. That's really powerful, I think, to segment down empathy because I think, you know, we typically just talk about empathy as this kind of idea, but I think usually what people think of is the emotional empathy, right? Just like feeling, you know, understanding how someone's feeling, but it's nice to have, to realize that it's actually quite holistic and there's more to it than that. Yeah. Um, and then skills four and five um, in this book is um, engaging in a joint activity. And number five is maintaining contact. So joint so, activity. So a joint, so a, so a joint activity, and I totally understand how um, if a couple is actively looking and seeking for opportunities to do things together, that's very logical, I think, to me and probably to people that are tuning into this, that that would generally, you'd think, strengthen the bond, you know, build a you know, solid base in the relationship, deepen the relationship, you know, because of a shared experience, right? And there's obviously lots of activities that couples can do together based on their interests and their um, the things that they enjoy doing. Um, but what do you mean exactly by staying connected? Yeah, so maintaining contact, staying connected, makes us also feel more secure. And that simply means be responsive to your partner. So when you're in person with each other, make eye contact, maybe touch, respond to their bid for connection. When they're reaching out with a question, with a comment, it's a bid for connection, respond to that. Of course, we're all busy, but then we need to say that, right? And then make an effort to be present with each other again. Um, we cannot always meet our partner's needs, absolutely. But when we're not in person and they're texting us or calling us, text back, call back, um, it's okay to say, no, I, I don't have time, but not responding, ignoring the call, ignoring the bid for connection, that's actually destructive. Um, when you think of our example with the wave and the island, the anxious partner, the wave, will become even more anxious when there's no response. 
when it's so easy to just simply say, sorry, I'm busy right now. Can we talk later? Right. And an island not getting res response might retreat further into, okay, I can't rely on other people. I'll just do this by myself. <clears throat> and you also mentioned the rituals of connection. So, you know, that, that um, leads me to believe that there are some things that people can put in place in their relationships to ensure because they're following certain rituals that they're really staying connected and continuing to strengthen and deepen the relationship. What are some of those rituals that can be really powerful and productive in strengthening the bond in a relationship? Yeah, they actually all have rituals. Rituals are essential for all relationships. And I think they're very much aware of the rituals with our children. You have children, so there's probably rituals around going to bed, um, when you leave the house or you come home, around holidays and so on. There's lots of different rituals with children. Um, adults, yeah. yeah, you're thinking of some probably well, right now. Well, and it's just, I think it's, it's um, a natural thing for humans to do because, because our, everything is so cyclical, right? You have your days, your weeks, your months, the quarters, the years, and you, the seasons of the year. And so we, you just fall into these rhythms and rituals naturally and i think we do that in all areas of our life sure yeah so with adults we also need to be mindful of these comings and goings that foster secure attachment um when someone has an avoidant attachment style they might think nothing of just leaving the house now an anxious partner will get really anxious in that moment it will be quite disconcerting to them they will be quite disturbed when every other partner does that so a short ritual like a hug a kiss a, a quick this is where i'm going and this is when i'll probably be back can allow that anxious partner to relax and feel more secure um stan tatkin he's a psychotherapist and relationship expert offers a really nice way of connecting when you're coming home. He calls it the welcome home exercise. When one partner comes home, the other partner drops everything and meets the, the homecoming partner in a full body embrace. And you actually hold this embrace until you feel both your bodies relaxing because that really calms our nervous system. And this little ritual between the adults is really good for the entire family because when that core of the family, the parents are calm and de-stressed, that's beneficial for the kids again as well. So I, I love that. I've got, I've so got a, I'm going to go upstairs and, and tell that <laughs> to, my, to Jenny right after this. because And it's funny because the welcome home uh, exercise I love that. And also, it's funny, we live in a time now where a lot of people, like in my case, for example, I'm already home, but you know, I'm down here in my office for the day. So, so we can still create that experience because I do have a, a ritual where I finish my work. It's the end of the day. And then I walk up the stairs. Luckily, I don't have a very long commute. There's about maybe 10 or 11 steps or something like that. And then I'm up and uh, I'm going to go and tell Jenny all about that exercise. That's wonderful. Yeah, good. So there's different rituals also at the end of the day when you say goodnight, different bedtime rituals or ending the day together or morning rituals. So all of these, um, again, are part of creating a more secure attachment. 
And what about eye contact? Because you say that's a skill to practice. Um, are there are there situations where eye contact is actually useful, but then also situations where eye contact can be counterproductive? Yeah. So um, I wouldn't expect or even force your teenager to make eye contact. That would be a little too intrusive. So if you want to talk to your teenager, it might be more productive. If you're driving somewhere together, you're both looking forward. Um, there's also some individuals where eye contact is just uh, too stimulating, it's just too much. However, in almost all my couple sessions, this is how I work. I ask the couple to turn towards each other, make eye contact, touch if it feels right, and watch each other's signals as they're speaking. I don't want them talking to me. I want them talking to each other and watching each other. And eye contact, um, I do this. The other day, a couple asked me, why? Why do you make us do this? Because it's one of the most powerful ways of connecting and regulating each other's nervous systems. And in order to have productive conversations, we need to feel safe. We need to have a calm nervous system instead of being activated into emotional states. And eye contact does that. And, and I see such beautiful moments when I do this for the first times with couples. I see a smile. I see an, right? You can literally see how the body relaxes as we're making eye contact with, with our partner. Um, yeah, nothing regulates us faster than this loving gaze, just as a, a hateful look, right? Or an angry look makes us feel like, you know, it could kill. The same applies and maybe even more powerful when we have a loving gaze where we can see, oh, we're special to this person. That's amazing how the nervous system can be regulated both by that, you know, the welcome home exercise you mentioned it's the touch, it's that full body embrace, and it's the calm that results in the calming of the nervous system. And it's amazing how, you know, the same effect can occur just through something as simple as looking at each other, but very intentionally, like creating that eye contact. And um, uh, yeah, I absolutely see how that can be really powerful and calming to the nervous system for both, for both parties. What about playing together? Um, you talk about playing together, but also not expecting the partner or not expecting your partner to respond in a way that you want them to respond or in a certain way. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so that would be skill eight and nine. Eight, playing together uh, can be beautiful. You're having fun together. That fosters your connection, your trust, provided the primary objective here is not to win and wherever one loses, but it's to have fun together. So playing together would be a good thing to do. Um, and then skill number nine is what Diane Poolheller calls to unautomate. Our brain automates many processes, like walking. I don't think about walking. I do it just automatically. Riding a bike. Once you know how to ride your bike, it happens automatically. Riding and so on. So many things that in order to function better have become automatic. But according to Stan Tatkin, we also tend to automate our partners by expecting them to respond in a familiar way. So we falsely believe we know them, but really we're all unique individuals and we constantly grow and change. 
I mean, even in, I don't know, you're married 10 years or something, even in those, not, not that long, but even in this, that time that you've been married, how much have you both changed and developed and grown? So if we don't stay curious, um, we end up with boredom and disconnection. So this is about doing new and unusual things separately, also together, so that we keep this novelty. Novelty creates attention in the brain, and that keeps our relationships alive and exciting and passionate. Well, I can imagine that that's even more true, that, that becomes more true the longer some uh, a relationship exists, because... Um, at least the need to create that novelty because you know as an example i met my wife and we started dating when we were children i mean we were um 16 and 17 and obviously we're not anymore <laughs> we've we've, <laughs> we've grown from you know since the time that we started dating we've both been to university my wife's been to teachers college we've traveled all over the world We've, start, we've started new careers and then, you know, our careers have then evolved. We've met tons of new people in those careers and we're very, and then we've had three children. So we're very, very different people. And I think sometimes um, it's possible to get caught into, into the belief that your partner is the same person they were when you first met them because because at the beginning of a relationship, there's a, I, this is my own uh, hypothesis here, but in the beginning of a relationship, there's a heightened sense of awareness. And so your memory is really soaking that in. Like I can remember back to the beginning of when me and Jenny started dating, this is back in high school. And I have very vivid memories of that time because I was on high alert. I, this was a new, exciting relationship. I had just also, for me, I transferred to a new high school and then, so that was a, an emotional experience just by itself. And then I also happened to meet my future wife on the very first day before the, before the first class even started. <laughs> and I had already connected and experienced the connection with the person that I eventually go on to marry. And the reason I share that is because that's obviously, you put all that together, that's a very heightened emotional experience. And therefore I have some incredibly vivid memories of that time and what you're teaching me through this conversation is if I'm not careful, I can create assumptions automatically. Right? We talk about unautomating that my mind will create assumptions automatically um, that Jenny is the same person that she was when she was a teenager or her early twenties or mid twenties. And so what I'm now going to be more conscious of is unautomating that sort of um every day choosing to see her as a new person, as an evolving person, as a growing person. And I think by doing that, it'll create more opportunities for deeper connection and healthier relationship long-term. So I think that's really, really valuable. Um, now in our last podcast, the last time that we did this, when I was guest hosting this show, we talked about apologizing. And it's interesting that there's some similarities here. The very last skill that you name in this list Sounds like it has a lot to do with apologizing. So can you talk about that final skill, number 10? Yeah, number 10 is repair. Mm -hmm. So Dr. John Gottman's research has shown how important repairing is. Um, a timely and heartfelt apology, and we talked about that in the last podcast, 
makes a significant difference for the longevity of relationship. It's not the disconnect that's the problem. It's can I repair and can I repair uh, smoothly and in a timely manner? So that means delivering a really good apology. It also means on the other end, receiving the apology gracefully and openly and willingly instead of maybe stubbornly insisting on that this apology wasn't good enough or something, right? So keeping in mind, repair is one of these key pieces to connect us again, to make us feel more secure because it's not the disconnection that ultimately weakens the relationship as long as we know how to repair the rift properly. Repairing actually builds resilience. Wonderful. And um, I, I, I think this has been such a positive and productive conversation, not only for the listeners, but I feel lucky to have been part of this conversation because I'm reflecting my, on my relationships, uh, and mainly the, the, the primary one in my life with my significant other. And there's always so much to learn about that and, and so many opportunities, I think, for growth and enrichment and deepening of a relationship like that. So this has been tremendously valuable for me. I'm, I'm sure that it's been valuable for everyone uh, tuning into this. And if you're listening to this right now, um, you can always go and find Angelica's amazing work. She's been writing for, uh, I believe, a decade, if not more at this point. So much material on her website. That's greendoorrelaxation.net. And you want to go to the blog because that's where all of the wisdom is, all of the lessons and the insights that Angelica has poured into that website over the past 10 years and beyond. Of course, on that website, greendoorrelaxation.net, you can also find a list of services on the website. You can reach out for an individual session. Uh, and I've had many, 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 many individual sessions with Angelica. Each and every one is unique, is different and powerful, transformative. Um, and you can also reach out if you would like to have a couples session. And I especially recommend this uh, to couples um, when you're really ready to commit to a long-term relationship. Maybe you're stepping into engagement or marriage or you're moving in together. You're committing to that long-term you know, partnership. That is especially a powerful time to reach out to Angelica and uh, ask for a session. Uh, and look at her offerings because you will not regret it. Your relationship will thank you for doing so for the rest of your life. It'll give you that foundation for a, a real significant and um, strong lifelong partnership. So with that, Angelica, thank you for this conversation today. Thank you for creating this space for all of us for this podcast. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much, Dave.